On March 30th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln declared a national day of prayer, fasting, and humility. The Civil War had been taking its toll on both sides, the North and the South, and Lincoln believed that if America as a whole turned their attention to God for just one day, it would help bring an end to the conflict. This is what he said. The awful calamity of civil war may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have forgotten God. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins. Lincoln saw that you know, the war between the North and the South as a punishment from God on the nation for forgetting him while they were growing in wealth and power. And he saw America had become proud and neglected this practice of seeking God, both individually and as a nation. And so he implored on this day every citizen to humble themselves through prayer and fasting in order to see uh, you know, a spiritually wealthy nation again. And it was just two days later uh, that an incident occurred that some would suggest that changed the course of the war. Now, I don't know if people preach that same introduction in the South, so there can be many different slants on what happened in the Civil War, and even the idea of God using that as judgment. But the question that I want to use to raise from this, the main point that I want to take from this is, can people move God? And specifically today, as we're asking this question in the series on revival, what role does humility have to play in, in that idea that people could move God? Lincoln seemed to, see, seemed to think that there was something connected to this idea of, of humility of, of, and of against, over against pride that had something to do with the dynamic that was happening in the country at that time. So again, the question today is, can people move God? And what role does humility have to play in that? So to answer that question, we are looking at the book of 2 Chronicles, everyone's favorite book of the Bible. And we talked about how Chronicles is really one book, it's kind of split up into two in the, in the English Bible. And, uh, you know, the first eight chapters of Chronicles, the first Chronicles, goes through just nine, ch- sorry, it's nine chapters of genealogies, just listing of people upon people. So you can read that in your devotions this week. Sorry, I'm using that joke again. I just can't help myself. It's just awesome stuff. Um, the verse, the key verse we're basing this series on is one that is kind of well known. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. And so last week, addressing this question of can, pe- can people move God, we saw that God does respond to people. He's not holding out on us, and he's actually wanting to respond. And so for the next four weeks, and starting today, we're going to look at how God did that, in this book of Second Chronicles, in the lives of four different kings. 
And today, we're going to look at the life of a guy named Josiah. He was one of the last kings to rule in Jerusalem, in the southern nation of Judah, before the, uh, the nation would fall to the Babylonians. He's one of the last guys, and you can tell that because it's kind of towards the end of the book. He began his rule, if you're a history person, in 640, around 640 B.C. So, we're going to pick up the very end of this book. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34. We're going to go through the life of Josiah. We're going to read all of this chapter. It's a little bit of a long chapter, but it's, it's telling a story. So just kind of try to stay with me as I'm reading this story and, and giving you some different points of things to notice. And then we'll answer a couple questions about humility at the end and then talk about what my sense is for what God wants us to respond today and as a people. All right, so 2 Chronicles 34, verse 1. Josiah, amazingly, was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and metal images, and they chopped down the altars of Baal in its presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them, and he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. All right, so here's Josiah, okay? He comes to the throne. He's eight years old. Amazing, okay? And it happened because his father was king, and he died really shortly into his reign, and the Bible says it was because he was a wicked man, and he was evil, and the Lord, the Lord dealt with him pretty quickly. So it was just two years into his father's reign. And at age 16, it says he begins to seek the Lord. And he follows up after four years of where he, it's, it's describing he's seeking the Lord. He starts to enact that. It starts to show in how he's ruling this nation. In that, he starts to deal and cleanse the land of all these idols. Now, I know idolatry is a little hard to relate to for us. You know, like people, these silly people bowing down to stone, you know, or wood images of gods. You know, for most Americans, that's, there's like no temptation at all to do that. But the idea back then was that they were looking for these things that were not God to meet their needs or make them happy. Right? As a theologian has said, you know, idolatry in America is, I'll be happy as long as I have Jesus and blank. And for them, this is just the expression of that, of trusting in like, okay, well, there's this God Baal, and he's kind of like good at doing rain and if it doesn't rain, we won't have any crops and we'll all die. So, you know what, we'll just do a couple of little things to bail on the side just to make sure in case this Yahweh God doesn't want to help us out. That's what's going on. So Josiah is, is, is doing something huge here for a young man to be ruling and enacting all of these things into this nation that had turned far from God and was worshiping all these idols. So his seeking of the Lord comes out in a leadership of repentance, of turning away from the wickedness in their land. 
amazing. Already we see two hints of a throwback to that 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. We already see he's hitting two of those things of seeking God and turning away from the wickedness in the land and helping other people to do the same. And you've got to imagine, this is a big deal, okay? Like, people probably made a living on this whole idolatry thing. They were priests to other gods, so he's like removing jobs. That's not usually a popular thing in a government to just say, okay, I'm going to slash all these jobs, right? You usually get a lot of cheers for that. You're talking about emotional investment, traditions that people had. He's breaking all of that stuff. Pretty big deal for a 20-year-old king to be doing that and spending the time in his administration to make this priority number one. So we see that Josiah is a man of truth. He's committed, right, to the true God of Israel. And he's a man of conviction. He's enacting this stuff in their land. He took a stand for what's right, regardless of, you know, how he may have been received. So picking up in verse 8, now in the 18th year of his reign, okay, so now he's 26, I'm glad you did the math right there, just like me, okay, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Aziliah, and Maasiah, sorry, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord as God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord, and the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. Interesting. The men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jehath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. All right, they're administering all of this stuff, the repair of the house. While they were bringing out the money, that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. One more paragraph. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Incredible. 
He's 26. And the next thing he does after clearing the land is he focuses on the temple. He's not focusing on the economy, right? He's not focused on, you know, strife and, you know, educational systems. Somehow, God is at the center of this guy's administration. He's taking the money at the temple to, rep- to pay people to repair it because the kings before him had left it in ruin. It's been neglected. He's putting this at the center, you know, of national security, so to speak. And what is amazing is he didn't have a Bible. I mean, somehow the guy is, is, is doing all of this stuff and he didn't have the book of the law, which could have either been the first five books of the Bible as it references to Moses. Some people think it was just kind of a, a, the book of Deuteronomy or a section of that book. And he's doing all of this coming out of a place where they didn't even know that they had a book anymore. It had gotten that bad. They're like, I found this book. I wonder if it's important. Yeah, it's the Bible. It's kind of a big deal. It's incredible how the Lord is leading him. And when Josiah hears the words that he's never heard in his life being read from this book, he tears his clothes. Because what's in that book, it describes all of the things that God would do to the people of Israel, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, if they did not obey and they turned to other gods. And he knows the recent history. I mean, he just spent years going through the land and breaking down all the stuff. And he's saying, it's too late. We've already done this. And these curses that are promised in this book are coming upon us. He cries out for mercy. I mean, this rending of his garments is a, is a sign of humility. It's a sign of desperation. And it's a, it's a, it's a mournful thing. Right? It's like a cry for mercy and for desperation. Verse 22. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all, just repeated over and over again, who were present in Israel, serve the Lord their God all his days. They did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Okay, long chapter. Thanks for sticking it out. I just felt like instead of me summarizing, let's read the Bible. Okay? The thing that stands out in this whole chapter is Josiah's humility before God. This is, this is like, you know, there's one other chapter, 35, that goes into them celebrating this really long Passover thing, and I'll spare you the details of all of that. But this is the mark of his entire life. These are the defining statements about who he was as a king, and it's about what? It's the fact that he tore his clothes and he was humble. Apparently, it's a rare thing. His grandfather, this guy named Manasseh, was a terrible king, wicked in every way, promoting evil in every realm. But it says that at the end of his life, after he was conquered by another king, he humbled himself. And the Lord amazingly received his humility and spared him from a captivity. But then it talks about his father and says that his father would not humble himself and died in that place of not having humility before God. The book, it just goes through with this theme of humility throughout the book of 2 Chronicles. The writer, so this, this word for humility is used 36 times in the Old Testament. Okay, Half the time, or half, you know, the word can mean kind of like one people group humbles another people group, where they subdue them. Like they conquer them, they humble them, they subdue them. The other times it means where you're actually bringing yourself low before God. It's 36 times in the Old Testament, and in 2 Chronicles it's used 15 times. That's almost half. And in 13 of those, it's used in that second manner where someone is humbling themselves before God. And in fact, the first occurrence of that happening that word is used in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. The point I'm trying to make is that the entire book, this is a theme, it's a thread that is woven through the entire book of 2 Chronicles that humility is a big deal when it comes to following God. It's huge. God responds to humility. That is the promise of 2 Chronicles as a book. It's that God responds to those that are humble. Whether it's Josiah who lives a righteous life his whole life, right, and still humbles himself, or it's his grandfather who lived a terribly wicked life, but at the end, he humbled himself and the Lord redeemed him. It's God responds to humility. And in some ways, it seems like this may be just the one thing that God is looking for from people. Now, in this verse that I keep saying in 2 Chronicles 7.14, the English translation 
actually reverses the order. When it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. The first word in the Hebrew is humble themselves. There's no subject in the beginning. They can kind of do that in their language. It just says, you know, they humble themselves. It's the first word as if that's the biggest thing. And then it says, if they humble themselves, you know, the people that are called by my name, and they pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Almost as if humbling yourself is a summary of all of those other things. Or those things are contingent upon this first act. That humility is the beginning of everything. Now, let's answer a few questions about humility. So what is humility? I mean, how do we define that? What does it look like besides tearing your garments and, you know, crying out or throwing dust on your head and wearing sackcloth? Okay, we don't normally do that in our culture. If you did that, it might be kind of weird. Okay? What, what, is it, what is humility? You may have heard someone say, okay, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. In other words, it's not demeaning your own worth, but it's focusing on those around you and on God. But this always comes from a place of deep honesty. Humility is the hardest work of honesty because it's getting real with yourself. It's turning honesty, not just in dealings with those around you. You know, I'm paying my taxes or I'm not stealing from my employer. Okay? It's turning that inward and and having a, a, a real examination of who you are and what's inside. And let me just tell you, that is hard. It is extremely hard. If you don't think it's hard, think about the last time that someone offered you some constructive criticism. That ain't easy to take. Humility is the hardest work of honesty. It's honesty turned inward. It's an honest assessment of yourself that allows you to see that you're not better than anyone else, right? It's saying, this is who I am. And having the courage to actually just say that, accepting this is, this is who I am. Right? It's an openness to receiving criticism. It's getting real again about who you are. This guy named St. Vincent de Paul said, humility is nothing but truth and pride is nothing but lying. And this takes a huge amount of courage to do that. It takes courage to admit you're not perfect. Right? You're not the perfect parent. You're not the best employee. It takes courage to say, hey, maybe I need to get some help for my porn addiction. It takes, it takes courage you know, to say, you know what, maybe I have some issues from my past and I need to work out and, because it's affecting my marriage. It takes courage to do that. But this is also what freedom looks like. Humility is freedom. When we can get real about who we are in a relationship with God where we're always accepted whether we've lived a whole wicked life like Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, or a whole righteous life like Josiah, and still know that we are loved and accepted. That is freedom. But it doesn't come unless we're willing to go to that place of humility, of exposing, of vulnerability and transparency. Guys, and if we're talking about revival, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. 
the guy that started our movement of churches, his name is Jimmy Seibert, and uh, he tells a story I remember hearing in our training school, and I listened to one of his teachings that, you know, as I was going through our discipleship training school, and the story is basically like he's received a lot of criticism in his ministry, and he often would get a letter in the mail that would just be describing all the things he's doing wrong or how he's, you know, a terrible leader or, you know, all this stuff, and the thing he's learned to do is take out his highlighter. And he would highlight everything in that letter that was true. Now that takes courage. And it takes humility to admit that someone that's just attacking you and just telling you all this bad stuff may have something true to say to you and some way that you can learn from them. But the way to get to that place is always starting with humility. Right? And, it's, and what's behind that is the honesty And behind that is knowing that God loves you no matter what. Knowing that in your heart, that when you're transparent before God, you're still accepted and loved. So why is humility so important? I mean, why would this be a big deal in the book of 2 Chronicles where we're going to look at these different kings and how some of them were terrible and others brought like revival to the people? Why is this the first thing that's mentioned before the subject in 2 Chronicles 7.14? I mean, they're throwing the grammar around, you know? They're putting that word first. Why is it such a big deal? And why does it separate out some people from others? Jesus had a lot to say about it, actually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, the good life belongs to those that admit their weakness in their own spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a big deal. Blessed, or the good life belongs to the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. All Jesus. The reason that humility is so important is that God can't work with pride. He can't work with that. He can't work with pride. And the reason is because he won't force himself on you. Because God is not a manipulator. He's not a controller. He doesn't force himself on people. And pride is saying, I know what I'm doing. I know the best path for my life. I'm going this way. Humility says, maybe I don't have it all figured out. Lord, please help me. Right? Pride's pulling one way, you're pulling the other. Sorry, God is pulling the other. Now, I've coached a lot of seasons in sports. It's probably up to like 16 or 17 seasons in soccer and basketball. I did a lot of coaching while I was a teacher for 10 years, and I'm, I'm actually coaching a fifth-grade girls basketball team, travel, Beverly basketball team. We're awesome. We won on, on uh, Saturday. Um, if you've ever played on a team sport, you know that this is true. There's a player that's pretty good, but if they get a big head and it goes unchecked by the coach, it destroys the team. I could tell you stories, but I will not. Because I don't want, you know, I don't want to dishonor anyone, okay? Because I coached all in this area, right? You might not even know some of the names of the players. I don't know, okay? But that destroys a team. When a player's saying, you know what? I'm, I'm the man putting down their other teammates. Come on, get the ball over here. No, give me the ball. You know, I'm the man. Give me the ball. 
You know what that looks like. You've seen that on the field or on the court or whatever sport it is. They demean their teammates, right? They think the world revolves around me because I've scored more goals or shot more baskets. It destroys a team. Let me tell you what. When you have a group of humble players, that builds the team when they were willing to listen to the coach. Yesterday, the other team put on the press because we were up a couple points at the end of the game. And the coach called a timeout. We kind of knew the press was coming. And so we, I gathered the girls and said, listen, this is what we're going to do. And they gave me their ears. I said, why don't you line up, okay, right in front of the hoop. You know, the hoop that we're taking the ball in, we're going this way. So we're taking the ball down there, and we're going to throw the ball long. And they did what I said, and it worked. They threw the ball long. We had a layup, you know. They're, they're putting the press on. It's a high-pressure situation. It's like, yes. Now, I tell you that and say, oh, I'm such a brilliant coach. It's like the easiest thing in the world. Just throw the ball long. I mean, just chuck it down there. They're all up there. Just have one kid run down. It's like I'm some brilliant coach. But they listened, and it worked, right? If they had said, hey, I'm going to do my own thing, no way, right? Maybe something would have worked. I don't know. You guys get the point? Maybe you've been on a team before. You understand what I'm talking about. God can't work with pride. It's opposed to him in every way. And humility, I mean, in fact, it is necessary to even just begin a relationship with God at all. Jesus said in another place, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The idea here is dependence. What are kids? They're dependents. Right? They depend on you. You have a baby, you got to take care of it. It's not taking care of itself. It's a position of humble dependence, Jesus is saying, that you have to have to even receive the kingdom, to enter the kingdom. We come to God saying, Lord, I cannot save myself. Help. And so we see this in the story of Josiah, right? The result of his humble response to the word of God and the ways that he sought the Lord was twofold. One, the disaster that God was going to bring on that land was delayed. It didn't happen during his lifetime. And second, for his whole reign, the people followed the Lord. Incredible. Incredible statement in the history of, this, of the people, the nation of Israel. Now, one thing I want to point out that's important to understand that I think we get wrong There's a difference between what's happening in Josiah's day and what we've got now because of this guy named Jesus. And that is, we are not running or behaving to get out from under God's curses on our lives. We have to break the idea that if you screw up, God's going to punish you. That is not how we are operating anymore. That is done. There's no wrath towards us. It's not there. So beyond what is even happening in this situation, we have entered into a new relationship with Jesus where he has died and he's killed all the bad stuff in us with him. As he dies on the cross, And he's raised to newness of life, and we are raised with him. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of God. So our humility is not delaying some punishment that's going to come on your life or us as a people because we're not doing it. I just need to clear that. There's a major difference between what happened then and what's happening now. Our humility is just releasing God's goodness all around us. It's not staving off some punishment that God's going to punish me because, you know, I, 
I was proud yesterday. It's not working like that. And so for us, though, it, but it is a key to seeing revived hearts. It's coming to God and saying, it's up to you, it's not up to us. So we can, we can tell God that we want Him, as we talked about last week. God, God goes where He's wanted. We can tell Him that till we're blue in the face. But if we don't combine that with humility as a people, God can't work with it. Because he can't work with pride. Now, unfortunately for Josiah, things did not end well. At the end of his life, the king of Egypt was kind of coming up near his land, and he decided, kind of of his own accord, to attack the king of Egypt. And you can kind of theorize about why he did that. He might have been trying to gain favor with the Babylonians. You know, and Pharaoh was, was uh, aligning with the Assyrians, and there's all this stuff. But regardless, it says in the passage that, that Josiah did not listen to the words of Necho, Pharaoh of Egypt, that were from the mouth of God. And what happened was this really interesting thing. It says Josiah did not turn away from him in engaging this other king, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. Isn't that interesting? Now, I hope I'm not making too much of this, but the writer chooses to mention that he disguises himself. He's not being honest, is he? He's aligned himself with falsehood of saying, you know what, I'm going to disguise myself. I'm hiding in darkness. He's not listening to the voice of God. You see, it all goes together. Right? That, that position of humility was a position of honesty about who he was, and now he's saying, hey, I've been a good king, I've ruled, you know, I'm just going to go make some decisions and make this thing happen. And he gets killed. And that's the end of his life. And guess what happens after that? The nation totally falls apart. And pretty soon after that is the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Bummer. We see the result of pride. And the writer mentions the end of his life to contrast this one thing where, of course, you know, he messed up, but there was a consequence there for him. So all I'm saying is this, God responds to humility, and we are not under the threat of a curse. We get the privilege of walking in Jesus, and as we walk in humility, saying, God, it's up to you that God can work through us to bring this about. So here's how we're going to respond today. Let's have the band come back up. There's two things that I want to mention to us uh, that I sense that God is doing. Can I have the ushers come forward or just a couple of volunteers to pass something out that we're going to use to, as a response today? Just anybody that wants to pass out some papers. Sorry, I'm, I'm pulling a teacher on you here. Yes, do we have any handouts? Just, just some homework. Anybody else help me out here? Just, just grab a couple of these, send them around so we can get everybody to have one of these quickly. Anybody else want to do that? Sarah, can you just send a couple that way? Thank you. Okay, so two, two things here. Um, the first is, I just want to restate that our goal at the harbor is to have every person in a peer discipleship group. If you don't know what that is, there there's, should be flyers out there on the table about how to do it. It's the simplest thing. Get together with somebody else and get real about what's going on in your life and pray for each other and preach the gospel to each other. We want every person at the harbor to be in one of those groups. 
I'm just saying that again. If you, if you want one of those handouts, please do that. I'm doing it with a pastor from the First Church Community, sorry, First Church Congregational in Boxford. We meet every two weeks. When we get real about the stuff going on in our lives, we pray for each other, we bless each other. Because I want to walk in humility. I want someone to know the junk that's in my life. I want someone to be praying for me and saying, that's not who you are, Brian. This is who you are because you die with Jesus and now you're raised in newness of life. You have the power to do it. We all need that. This is the second thing that I want you to see in responding to in this moment, which is I want you to read that list on the left-hand side about kind of our default, our default mode as humans. And I just want to ask the Lord, hey, is there something on this list that you are highlighting to me to say, oh man, that describes me, Lord. I want to repent from that. And listen, repentance is not groveling before God and begging for forgiveness. He's already guaranteed that in Jesus. It's just saying, Lord, I want to turn from this. Thank you that you've given me the power by the Holy Spirit to do that. 